All right. Um. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, experts say that if you're speaking in front of a, an audience and it's your first time ever preaching on a weekend, that if you ever feel nervous, just pause and take a sip and everything will be fine. So, so should, be, should be just fine. I thought maybe I should trip on the way up on purpose just to get that over with, all the embarrassment, all the... But uh, no, I, I, made it, I made it smoothly up here and, and last night I, I made it through and I, I was able to sleep at night and I wasn't tormented by what did I do? No, it, all, it all went well. So it's good to be here. Um, it's an honor. It, I'm, I'm really excited about this. Uh, probably prepared for this more than I've prepared for most things in my life. Um, and uh, that can be a problem when you preach a sermon because you have to contain it to 30 minutes or so. And, um, but uh, just as Bob has been saying the last few weeks, when you, when you dig into this stuff, there's so much to share and there's so much uh, I'm excited about. But uh, I'll try to keep it simple and uh, share with you just what God has put on my heart to share. And I think uh, it'll bless you as it's blessed me over and over this week. Um, but before I, I get into the meat of, of what we're talking about today, I just want to thank Pastor Bob and Gabe, our leaders. Let's give them a hand for, for just... Um, I just want to thank you guys personally just uh, for giving me this opportunity, and, and even just as it's an example of what our mission at our church is all about. It's, it's to help empower and to identify and to uh, give place for people's spiritual gifts, not just during weekend services, but wherever you're called to serve, wherever you're gifted, wherever God has put a, something inside of you, the, the purpose of our mission is to let that come out. So I wanted to take a minute. Bob spoke for three weeks at the beginning of the year about our mission. Maybe if uh, you were here for that, you heard, and he's probably like, I don't want to beat them over the head with it. Well, I'm gonna, I want to bring it up one more time because I don't think he has been. And I just want to uh, read through it quick because I think it's a good reminder. And uh, just the way I remember it, before I even read it, is it's the three things to help me remember because there's a lot of content there, and I think for good reason. But I remember that... Uh, that our mission is to equip the body of Christ to use their spiritual gifts to do the word. This is that simple. But this, this puts a little more meat to it. So let's read it together. Our mission, Discover Community Church, is a place where the body of Christ will be encouraged and equipped to use our spiritual gifts in order to actively care for our neighboring community and to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. And so when I was preparing... This last little phrase really kind of inspired me to, and focused me on what I'm going to share on because it says, encouraged, we're encouraged by witnessing the fruit of local outreach. And that's what Gabe has been talking about and the different outreaches. And, and uh, we, want, we want more ideas. We want, we want to know what, what you have on your heart to reach your neighbors, to reach the people in your circle of influence. But then we are equipped by the ongoing study of the word to hear his direction. And we, we study the word in many ways, but this, the weekend service is really, we, we gather together because we believe that God's word is, is worth focusing on. It's worth digging into, and it's worth studying together. And when we study it together, then throughout the week, we're able to um, process it together in relationship as we walk this journey together. And we even have a Wednesday night group. I'm going to do a plug for that, um, where we just, each week, we take time and, and gather here in the sanctuary usually, and we just take from 7 to 8.30, we discuss um, what we learned from the past weekend, and we try to digest it a little more. Because I don't know about you, but I grew up in church. I'm going to get into my story at, at the end of the message. I grew up in church, and I heard 
I was, I was going to say millions. That's probably a little bit of an over-exaggeration. But I was in church three times a week, and Monday, or Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Wednesday night, and we, I, I heard more messages. You know, if, if I was doing all the things that I've heard, if I was a doer of the word, man, I, I'd be in heaven already because I'd be done. You know? <laughs> but, but I haven't. And, and it's because we hear so much, and, I, and it's doing good. When we hear God's word, it does good stuff in us. But the more we put it into practice, the more we're, we're uh, multiplying and really fulfilling the purpose that God wants us to fulfill. So thank you, Bob and Gabe, for carrying this vision of our church and this mission and, um, and having the heart to, to, to serve the mission God gave you, not your mission. Not, and I just love how they're, you know, he, he even gives me a chance to stand up here and say whatever I want, which is a big risk. So I was like, we're only two months old. Don't close it down today. You know, so, so, so thank you. Um, I just want to say that we all have a part in, in this. You know, it's not just about what we do on the weekend. It's, it's uh, you and I are the church. And so uh, I'm excited to do my part today. Um, we're talking about uh, the station number five where Jesus, well, in our station, number, our number five, in the traditional station, it would be number 10. So if you ever do go to a, a place where they have the station set up and you're like, why? I, they missed some. Well, we're doing just the ones that are, are specifically mentioned in Scripture. And so um, I'm going to read our scripture for today. It's uh, Matthew 27, so if you want to preload that um, while I just set it up. Uh, the first chunk of verses aren't, aren't going to be on the screen, so if you have a device. Isn't it cool that, that we get to have a copy of God's Word in our pockets? You know, we thought the printing press was a big deal, but now we have a copy that just we can multiply it over and over. There was a time when... Um, you had, if you wanted a copy of God's word, you had to write it yourself or you had to pay someone a lot of money to write it out for you by hand. And so we don't even really take much time to think about how, how precious and how valuable it is that we get to have a copy of his word. So I want to, um, start in Matthew 27 and we're going to, you're going to hear in this scripture, a little bit of a review. It's, it's going to cover several of the stations that we talked about in the last two weeks. One of them it mentioned specifically and one of them it, it kind of skips over. So um, the reason we're doing that is, is these stations c- kind of overlap, and if you just tell one story, you kind of miss the context. So um, the station uh, where Jesus is stripped of his clothing is it, significant because the stations are set up along a path that Jesus took from the time he was sentenced to the time he died on the cross. And we have come then in this station to the destination. Every point, every focal point of, this, of the Stations of the Cross happen here at Calvary, here at Golgotha. So um, I'll read this, and, and then we'll, let's read this together. I've got all these tabs, and now I can't even find. Confused. Which tab? All right. Psalms, or I'm sorry, Matthew 27, verse 27. I'm on track now. I think, I think I will. Um. <laughs> So whenever I read through this story, it's not just, uh, uh, I mean, there's a lot of chunks of the Bible you read them, and they're just, they're kind of filling in the gaps, right? They're, but this is, a, this is pretty special. We're talking about the passion of the Christ. We're, we're focusing on the very focal point of history, where time was split into A.D. and B.C. We're talking about um, the, the events that took place that have changed our lives, and why we sit here, and why there are billions of people around the world on this Sunday, worshiping. It's because of of what Jesus did right here. So let's read that together. 
I'm reading the NIV, and most of the, my older NIV is the same as what's on the screen, but if you see a few different words, just know that their NIV's been updated. So, Verse 27, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. So this is pretty heavy stuff as we just think about what Jesus was going through. And what makes it even heavier is to really recognize, and many of us have have come to that realization, that he is walking our journey. He's taking the steps that we deserved. We deserve punishment for our sin, and he took it all for him. And so that's the point I want to talk about today, that they describe here the dividing up of Jesus' clothes. They don't say specifically how he was stripped, but we can infer that, that as Simon brought him and walked him all the way to Calvary and set his cross down, that before the soldiers could nail him to the cross, his clothes would be removed. And they didn't just do that because it was more convenient. They did that on purpose. The victims of crucifixion were, were um, purposefully tried to be put in the most painful position for physical pain, but also emotionally they tried to be shamed as shameful as possible. And so it wasn't just a convenience thing or even the greed of the soldiers who wanted these clothes. It was on purpose to say, hey, the Romans are saying, this is what we're going to do to anybody who tries to defy what the rules we set in place. And so Jesus is stripped in front of the crowd. And as we saw earlier, this wasn't the only time. The soldiers had already stripped him once and put a robe on him and mocked him. And then... Uh, led him through. So Jesus is going through a process of being rejected, uh, despised, mocked, and um, taking all this upon himself. And again, he is taking our place. Um, so as we just kind of contemplate that a minute, I just want to take a quick moment to mention that as, as our Stations of the Cross has brought us to Calvary, um, no one really knows archaeologically for sure. Some people might think they do, but it's really hard to determine where the crucifixion happened in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city that has been conquered and rebuilt over and over again. And um, for, for uh, much of tradition, and if we put up the picture um, of the doors here at the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, from 300 AD on, most uh, Catholics and, and the church in, in Herndel, uh, chose this to be the place where they believed that Jesus was both crucified and then in another section of the building where he was buried, about 50 yards away. And um, 
the, the, the Roman ruler Constantinople, who was the first Roman ruler to accept Christianity and actually made it an official language, he sent his mother to Jerusalem to explore and try to find the places where these things happen. And to the best of their ability, they tried to locate where he might have been crucified. But the, the city had already been completely destroyed and rebuilt. So it was very challenging, especially with the limited archaeological knowledge they had at the time to really determine, hey, this is exactly where it was. So they would go by tradition, they would go by uh, word of mouth, and they would do their best. So in recent years, about the last hundred years, an, uh, a gentleman named Gordon found another area, so let's put up this other picture, where they believe Jesus was buried, and nearby there's a hill called uh, the Hill of the Skull, which actually looks very rugged, and, and you can almost make out an idea of a skull. And so many people in the last hundred years have kind of chosen that they think this is a more likely site where Jesus died and was buried. And both of them um, are, you know, places where people go to worship and contemplate, but both of them acknowledge that we're, this is, to the best of our knowledge, this is where we think this might have happened. So um, I just want to touch on that a moment because I think it it is, um, it's important to, you know, I don't want to give anyone the expectation that someday maybe they can go to Jerusalem and find the spot. It really is. Uh, something we take on in, in, in a small part by faith. But what we do know is that Jesus was a real person and that he lived in a real time, and this is undisputable through historical references. And when we read God's word, we see details that when, whenever we see something in his word, we can know that even up to this time, nothing has ever been disproven. The only thing we've seen is confirmations. We've never seen anything disproven in God's word. So that's a pretty exciting thing. So that brings us back to our, our topic, Jesus being disrobed. And for us to understand, the, you know, obviously to be exposed and to be shamed is, is, is kind of one of the main points. But when we talk about what clothes represent, you know, for us even today, the clothes we wear kind of represent our style, our personality. But even more so, they represent our social status. They represent often our occupation. How many have ever, or is, or has had a job where you've had to wear a uniform? Let's put the hands up. Let's get interactive. Oh, yeah, a lot of us. So you can identify, oh, that person works here because they have the uniform. The UPS guy with his brown shorts and brown shirt is like, hey, he might have something for me. That's a, exciting to see that guy. Or, you know, uh, whatever that uniform is, a doctor's got the white coat. Um, so we, we know, hey, there's the doctor. Now I, now I feel safe. I can, you know, tell him my problem. Um, so our clothes represent our identity, and in this time, their identity was also very distinguished by their people group, their family, uh, where they're from. The Jews could tell who Samaritans were. When Jesus went to the well, the Samaritan knew he was a Jew just by the clothes he was wearing, and maybe by his accent, but he hadn't even talked to her yet. He said, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? So his clothes were, were a distinguishing feature that Jesus had, so we know this about him. They represent his identity. And um, we're going to dig a little bit deeper, and I want you to turn to John chapter 19, verse 23, if, if you have your Bible handy. And I want to, the same, the same section is expounded on in John, where it talks about Christ's clothes at the cross and what happened to him. So in John chapter 19, uh, we're, we're at Golgotha, and in verse 23, it describes a little more in detail what happened to his clothing. So when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, 
one for each of them. So there are four soldiers. With the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. So as you can see, that last, second to last phrase, there's some quotes around it, and that means it's referring to a prophetic, uh, a prophetic thing that's, that's been happening before. Jesus in this moment is fulfilling prophecy, and he didn't do anything about it. He was just being crucified. The, the soldiers actually fulfilled the prophecy about Jesus. And it's really exciting then to dig in a little deeper. And so um, as I, I've dug into this, I recognized in my little study Bible, it has a footnote, Psalms 22, verse 18. So I read through Psalms, and as I read through it, it really kind of helped me emotionally, I guess, be a little bit more, have an understanding of what Jesus was going through in this process of humiliation. Um, but before I, we read that, I want to just mention one more thing about Jesus' clothes, as it, as it mentioned here. They were divided into four parts. In, um, in, in our family right now, we're reading through the Bible. We're trying to do it in, in approximately a year. We're trying to be gracious if we are a day or two behind and, and not make it super you know, rigid. So we're all about <laughs> ten days behind. Uh, but... But um, we're, we're, getting, we're getting traction and we're, we're making progress. And, and it's, it, it's, it's been a, a kind of a, a battle at times. But after we've been in it a, a couple of months, we started in December. And it's really started to come, come alive. Even, even Leviticus is coming alive, you know. And so I'm in Deuteronomy right now. But in, as I was reading through Exodus a few months ago, uh, I was reading through uh, the description of the high priest and all the other things of the temple. But the high priest uh, by himself had a lot of regulations to follow. In order for this one high priest to come into God's presence, the holy of holies, he was required to do a whole bunch of things. He needed to wash. He needed to do certain shaving. He needed to have the certain oil put on his head. And then he had to wear all the right clothes. And so I'm going to just describe real briefly in Exodus. And this is the one I didn't put a tab in. So you're going to have to be patient with me. But in Exodus chapter 28, verse 4, we see just really briefly described the um, clothing that the high priest wore. 28, verse 4. These are the garments they are to make. A breastplate, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, and that's the one we want to focus on, a turban, and a sash. Six. And if you exclude the turban, there are five that are on the body. They are, the, they are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron, the high priest, and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. And so each of these things had different representations, and that's uh, enough uh, stuff for a whole other sermon. But I want to make mention that the woven tunic was of one piece. It was woven from top to bottom, and it had a uh, no seams. And so when we read it back in John again, we see that the, uh, the, the, the soldiers found this undergarment and they said, hey, this is a really nice one-piece thing. If we tear it, it's, it, it's going to take this very valuable thing and make it basically just like a bunch of rags. So let's cast lots for it. And, and by pointing out and bringing this to 
to a point of focus, I believe God is trying to show us that Jesus is being confirmed here as our high priest. He's the one, and it says this in Hebrews if you want to study it out further. It's a, it's a fascinating study how Jesus is our high priest. And through, with his own blood that he was shedding at this moment, he was going before the Father, presenting his blood as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And so even a simple prophecy like this that seems, well, they're just trying to prove that Jesus did what he said he did. There's a lot more depth and there's a lot more meaning to everything that Jesus did. And so Jesus uh, was, was stripped of his identity, he was stripped of his dignity, and he was shamed before the crowds. Not just in this moment that we're talking about, station uh, uh, where he was stripped, but each step along the way. And I want you to take a moment to think back even when he was before the Sanhedrin that we talked about the first week, when he was judged by the Jewish rulers, by the high priest who sat over the Sanhedrin. So the, the high priest that was supposed to be representing him rejected him and despised him and called him out and said, you're a liar, you're a blasphemer, you deserve to be crucified, we're sending you to the Romans to, 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 to get rid of you. So he, he was despised by the Jews, God's chosen people. And then he was also despised, as we saw in verse 27, where the Roman soldiers and Pilate, they mocked him. They, they spit on him. They beat him with rods. And so this representation of every strain of humanity, the God's chosen people and those who were living the pagan lifestyle, all rejected Jesus in this moment. And so Jesus stands there naked before them all, being mocked, and he chooses each step. He chooses to do this for us. Let's read that in Psalm 22, where it describes uh, Jesus. Now, this it was written about a, a thousand years before this happened. And David is just pouring out his heart in a, in a psalm. And the Spirit of God falls on David, and he begins prophesying. And you'll see very clear prophetic words through this. I'm just going to read so a few highlights. I, I encourage you to read the whole chapter. But in verse 6, he begins to just uh, pour out his, his affliction before God. He says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by my people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now, if you'll read through the whole passion in Matthew or Luke or John, the, the, this is almost quoted word for word by those who are mocking him. In verse 9, or I'm sorry, skipping to verse 11. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, opening their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember, Jesus was asking for water, and they gave him vinegar instead. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So as you can see, this isn't just a random, hey, look at that old verse in the New Testament and lines up with this one in the New Testament. Can you see how this describes Jesus 
step by step being mocked, being surrounded, being rejected. And he did this all for me and for you. He did this to take our place. And so this takes us, uh, one more verse I want to read, just, just kind of emphasize this point. Isaiah 53. And this is very well known as a prophecy about Jesus, but I want to read the first three verses, which sometimes are skipped over. Because we know from verse 4 on where it talks about, um, uh, surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. But if we look at the very beginning of Isaiah 53, the first three verses... It says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Do you see the parallel there with Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53? And so, again, Jesus was called in the scriptures the second Adam. And the reason it does that is because Jesus was doing and, and, and desiring to take us back to what God originally intended for us. And Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy from back in Genesis. So we're going to take a step back for a moment. Um, one of the things when I first thought about Jesus uh, being stripped, the first thing I immediately thought of was, man, he was being shamed. What a shameful thing to have to be stripped and mocked. And, and, and especially in that culture, you know, our culture has almost lost our sense of shame. And we're, we're very much um, almost hardened. And, uh, and uh, our, 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 our uh, culture is almost... You know, and I'm going to read a verse about that, that we take what is shameful and kind of celebrate it and glory in it. But when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in the garden perfectly, and, and they were naked. And uh, as we look in verse 25 of chapter 2, at the end of the creation story, when all is complete, the last verse that God wants to point out for us all to see, and it's not just a marriage verse, it's, it has to do with these, this principle I want to talk about. And it says, the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And so when God created them, they were innocent. They didn't even know right from wrong. They trusted God with everything. They trusted God to be uh, their guide. And all this changed then in chapter 3 when the serpent comes on the scene and says, hey, I want to just tell you another, another option. There's another way that I think you might be interested in. And so uh, as... The serpent deceives Eve and, and talks to him about, hey, you won't surely die if you take this. I'm going to pick up from verse 6 and just read along with me. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, so he doesn't get off the hook, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And some people think, well, that's a good thing. I want, I want my eyes to be open. I want to have good knowledge, right? This is a good thing. No. They lost their innocence. So when their eyes were open, look what happened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
So just a chapter ago, they were naked and they felt no shame and it was fine. But now all of a sudden it's not fine. And they covered themselves and hit and covered themselves so that they could not be ashamed of each other. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. They hid they ducked behind the bushes. But the Lord God called the man and said, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. So he kind of gave his tell, right? He and he and God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, Well, the woman, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so we see right away, because of this knowledge of good and evil, they're immediately beginning to dishonor one another. They're beginning to blame one another. They're beginning to try to push the responsibility off of themselves because they realize that they have messed up. You see, we were intended to be dependent on God and, and let him be the judge of right and wrong. But the enemy gave them the opportunity to know for themselves and to live independently from God. And so this brought about shame into the world. And shame is when we hide from one another and when we hide from God because we are ashamed of what we've done. Now, there are two kinds of shame. There's uh, healthy shame. When, we've done, we, when there's been wrongdoing, when we've hurt somebody, it's shameful. It's wrong. And we, f- we should feel shamed when we're guilty. And we should, that shame should drive us to make things right, to be reconciled, to, to heal those relationships. But then there is a type of shame that we've all experienced and we see all around us. And this is shame of whom we become. And we begin to think, well, here's my track record. Here's all the things I've done wrong in my life. Therefore, I'm messed up. Something is wrong with me. I am shameful. I am less than. I am broken. I'm messed up. And so instead of identifying ourselves with our creator who made us, we identify ourselves with our sin. We identify ourselves with our brokenness. And those things, as true as they are, we should be ashamed of the behavior, but God intended that we see ourselves the way he sees us. But shame and sin causes us to be blinded to that, to begin to hide, and to be fearful. Shame causes fear, and shame causes us to withdraw from one another. Because we fear that if people really knew what I've done, or people really knew what I'm like, if they knew what's going on inside of me, how could anybody truly love me? How could anybody truly care? And so as children, when we experience that shame, we pull away from our parents. As, as, as friends and spouses, we pull away from another because like, I don't want them to see the side of me. I'm going to fix it, and then when I get things together, then I'll, I'll share a little bit more what's going on. And I think we all find ourselves to some degree in that place. Adam and Eve were ashamed of what they did. Their failure which stemmed from what they had become. They had become willfully independent self-rulers. They were just like Satan who said, I want to be like God. They desired to know right from wrong, independently of God. So this is the position we find Adam and Eve in. And so here's the first Adam, shameful, exposed in the garden. And God actually, in that moment, he has to send them out of the garden. But before he does, he clothes them 
with, anim- with animal skin. And so that's a picture of the first substitute sacrifice, which points to Christ. And here Christ is becoming our covering. He is, become, he is being exposed, and his blood is being shed to cover us. And we'll get into that a little more in a moment. So let's behold Jesus again. Being prepared, having his clothes taken from him. Standing before us. What compelled Jesus in that moment? He knew this was going to happen. He knew how he was going to die. He told his disciples, they're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise again. He knew every step of the way, and he chose every step. He could have fled. He could have taken off, but he stood because of one thing, because he loved us. Hebrews 12.2 states why, and a little insight of what was going on in Jesus' head in this moment. Romans 12.2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That sounds like an impossible statement. Who could be joyful about heading to crucifixion? But Jesus, this is one proof that joy isn't always about being happy. Joy is something inside that drives us despite circumstances, not because of circumstances. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus had his clothes removed, and once more his wounds were opened up, and they began to flow and pour out the blood that was shed for you and me. He was taking our place, paying for Adam's sin, for my sin, and for your sin. And so as I just conclude here, I just want to tell a little bit of my story. Because I think it's one thing to just tell theology and talk about Jesus. But I want to get personal and say how this story has impacted my life. And I hope that can be an example for you. Because uh, it's not an example of, hey, I've figured this out. I got it right. No, I, I got it wrong, and Jesus covered me. And uh, let me tell you, so I told you a little bit about my churchy childhood, going to church three times a week, and I, I love church. I was one of those kids who actually didn't mind going to church because my friends were there, and I liked to learn, and I wanted to please Jesus, and I wanted to learn his word. But about, the same, about five years old, I, I asked Jesus in my heart. I became aware that I needed to do that. But, but about the same time, I was in, introduced during some playtime with uh, some peers of mine uh, when my parents weren't around by some sinful activity that five or six years old that they, you know the kids just messing around but and being curious and just ignorant and unguided and it opened up a, a door of sin in my life and um, from that point on I just I, I began to feel shame and I began each time I went to church to feel really bad and to realize wow I really got to fix this and once I fix this then I'll be able to let God know that I did a good job for him and let my parents know that they can, they can be proud to call me their, their son. Well, this, this pattern happened of soon I'll get this fixed happened over about the course of 25 years. So then as a man, I, I, this, this same picture is the same thing Adam and Eve were doing. I was trying to create my own fig leaves and trying to find a nice big bush to hide behind so that God really couldn't see what was going on inside so I could fix it for him. My heart was to fix it. I didn't want the sin, but I didn't know how to get rid of it. And I didn't realize he was the only one who could help me. And so at a certain point, 
this sin grew to the place where the bush was not effective at hiding it anymore. And the day I had dreaded my whole life was, had come. And as I stood there and, and my sin was found out by some people around me, I was fortunate to uh, have those people be people who loved God and had experienced forgiveness and grace himself. And in that moment, instead of rejection, instead of judgment, which I deserved, instead of being thrown out, I, I received mercy, grace, forgiveness by these people who represented Christ to me. And in that place, I stepped out from behind the bush and exposed. I let these people and God begin to help me cover my sin with Christ's righteousness, not my own. I tried for years behind the bush to try to find some righteousness, try to figure it out and try to present myself the best I could. And, and I, I believe my story is not unique. I think we've set up um, in culture and in our church and in so many ways, we, in church capital C, the big one, and we're trying to be a church here at Discover where it's a safe place to be real. It's a safe place to ask for help. It's a safe place to confess our sins and to pray for one another and to find healing. And that's what James 4 says, that if we confess our... our start to quote a different one. It says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. And so I want to invite the worship team up at this time. And as, as they just play in the background, I just want to, now that I've shared my story, I want to give you an opportunity to, to just to talk to the Lord. And in this time of worship and reflection, we're going to have communion in a moment. And I want you just to take a moment to say, God, where am I at? Am I hiding behind a bush, trying to deal with my own sin on my own? But I'm stuck. And I've tried to fix it for years so that I could come out and finally interact and show people how, how, you know, how good I am. Or, or maybe I've, I've done that and I've had some healing in my life, but out of habit I find myself every once in a while just going back and hiding behind the bush. God's calling us out and Jesus stands exposed, naked, saying, what, what gives us the courage to step forward is Jesus in this moment, naked before us bearing our sin on himself. If he hadn't done that, we couldn't do it. We couldn't step out. And, it, and this process isn't to shame anyone, but it's to be clothed in his righteousness. He exchanges our shame and he takes it on himself and he gives us his righteousness. So let's bow our heads. And as we, as I just pray a prayer in a moment, I want to invite you to ask God what your action point is. And, he, and, and it's a fearful thing to consider sharing our pain, sharing our shame with a brother or sister, a pastor a prayer team member. But we want to make that available. And the reason we can try to trust somebody else with our hurt, with our pain, with our shame is because we're not putting our trust in them. We're putting our trust in Jesus. And we're just his hands and feet. We're, we're broken. We're all wounded. We're all in the same place. 
and we can come along one an- aside one another and we can celebrate Jesus. We can behold the body exposed, broken for us. And as it was broken, the precious blood, his lifeblood was poured out to cover our sin. And when we believe that that's true, we can have fellowship with one another. We can walk in his righteousness, not because of what we have done, not because we finally got it together, but because he is calling us to be his sons and daughters. He's giving us his identity. He's clothing us with his robe of righteousness. And when God sees us as we step out from the bush, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ. He sees the sacrifice. He sees the blood. And he says, that's my son. It's my daughter. And all he has left for us is love, acceptance, forgiveness. going to begin to worship now. I want to invite the people to come and serve communion. And as, as you pray, feel free to respond. If you want to talk to a brother or sister here, Bob and Gabe are available, myself and Janet, all the staff, our prayer teams, which we commissioned last week, they'll be in back and you can go and, and respond how God calls you to respond. Maybe it's your spouse that he's calling you to talk to. Maybe it's a friend. But let's move forward into what God is calling us to, to live this life of freedom of new identity in Christ, of life. Let's leave the old behind and let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your blood that was poured out, your body that was broken. And we receive your gift in Jesus' name.
bless you as you go about your day. We're going to stay and worship a little bit longer, but if it's time when you need to leave, then we just bless you as you go. We pray that you have a wonderful week that has protection over you and just love and joy and peace as you go about your your week. Um, We love you. We bless you. And we hope to see you all back next week. Thank you, guys.